when I think of my sister, I think of him also, unfortunately. And he's been the only person in my whole life that I'll never forget. That was Kelly Lee telling me how she still thinks about her sister, Janice Schneider, who was murdered 16 years ago this month inside a Dollar General store in Deltona. Schneider's killer, Roy Lee McDuffie, is serving a life sentence for fatally shooting Schneider and her co-worker. And that story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the latest arrest of a Volusia County substitute teacher and longtime political aide and blogger who was accused of committing lewd and lascivious acts against a 15-year-old boy. David Lee Davis remains jailed on $100,000 bail. Later, I'll discuss the 2002 slings of two Dollar General employees who were murdered by a manager trainee. The story captured headlines on a daily basis while detectives pieced together all the evidence they needed to arrest Roy Lee McDuffie, who was charged nearly two months after the killings. McDuffie originally was sentenced to death, but is now serving three life sentences. My special guest for that segment will be News Journal crime reporter Patricio Bologna, as well as Kelly Lee, the sister of one of the victims. Coming up, the story behind the arrest of a local substitute teacher. It is a textbook example, once again, of a person in power who parents entrust their child to and he uses that trust to sexually abuse this 15 that was volusia county sheriff mike chitwood discussing the arrest of david lee davis a local substitute teacher and longtime political aide and occasional political candidate the 62-year-old Port Orange man was charged Wednesday with lewd or lascivious battery on a victim younger than 16, and his bail was set Thursday at $100,000. Davis is accused of molesting a 15-year-old boy he had been tutoring. Davis ran for Volusia County Election Supervisor in 2016 and finished in a distant third. He also ran twice for U.S. Congress, once in 1982 and again in 1990. He lost both times. After his first loss in 1982, the winner, incumbent Bill Chapel, hired him to join his staff. Davis remained active in the local political scene ever since working for Chapel. He wrote a political blog and most recently was the campaign treasurer for Volusia County Council candidate Michael Armenio, who is running for the District 3 seat. Davis was also a Daytona Beach police officer for three years, beginning in the fall of 1975. Four years after resigning from the police department, he ran for office for the first time. 
The investigation into Davis started after a school resource deputy was notified of the allegations on September 27th. A report stated that the boy told a neighbor about what Davis had done to him, and she called the school, eventually getting in touch with the deputy. The boy was questioned, at which time he alleged that Davis asked him to take off his pants and then molested him. During an interview with detectives a week or so later, the boy said Davis, during another visit to his house, physically restrained him and sexually assaulted him. Detectives said the boy visited Davis's home numerous times, from April through September. Chidwood also told the News Journal that Davis had regularly interacted with more children through his church. We feel, based on uh, Davis's work with the Catholic Church in Port Orange, Epiphany of Our Lord, and with the school board, that there may be other victims out there. During the defendant's first appearance in court Thursday, the assistant state attorney assigned to the case said the sheriff's office conducted a controlled call between Davis and the boy. The prosecutor said it was during that call that Davis admitted to the sexual abuse. Standing before the judge in his orange jumpsuit Thursday, Davis, while listening to the prosecutor lay out all the evidence, had a pained expression on his face and shook his head. In early 2015, Davis created a Facebook group called the Volusia County School Forum, which has nearly 7,000 members. On October 2nd, Davis posted an announcement that he would no longer be the lone administrator of the page, saying, quote, in part, unfortunately, along the way, I have made some mistakes. A school district spokeswoman said Davis began substitute teaching in 2013. He stopped teaching as soon as the allegation was made on September 27th. It was a few days after that when he stopped being administrator of the Facebook page. Two complaints were filed against Davis during his time as a substitute. In 2013, students at Silver Sands Middle School reported that Davis called them idiots and told a student who answered a question correctly, quote, I'm surprised you got that right. He also complained about the Port Orange School's cafeteria food and said students there were on summer break for too long. Afterward, Davis was no longer allowed to teach at Silver Sands, but was permitted to substitute at other schools. He worked at a total of 10 schools while a substitute, five middle schools, and five high schools. In 2016, the district received a more serious complaint about Davis. He was accused of sexual misconduct, as well as excessive use of social media during class. A school spokeswoman said a district inquiry failed to produce sufficient evidence to support the allegation. The review was closed as unsubstantiated. And again, it fits the profile. Here's a man who uh, is a youth leader at his Catholic school, the Catholic church. He is a adjunct or a, 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 a teacher, uh, a substitute teacher who gains the trust and confidence through tutoring with algebra uh, and, and then takes advantage uh, of this young man. I mean, it, it, it is despicable, it is cowardly. Uh, you stole this child's innocence uh, away. And obviously there are certain type of, of child that these 
scumbags look for. Anyone with information about other possible incidents of abuse is urged to contact the sheriff's office's Child Exploitation Unit at 386-323-3574. Coming up, the story about the double slang that rocked Deltona 16 years ago this month. She just did not like him. The way he carried himself, she, he kind of gave her the creepies, but she couldn't put a finger on it. Kelly Lee described to me the conversations she had with her sister, Janice Schneider, about a new employee she had been training at the Dollar General store in Deltona, a 39-year-old manager trainee by the name of Roy Lee McDuffie. During the night of October 25, 2002, McDuffie murdered Janice, along with her co-worker, Danielle Beauregard, known by her friends as DJ. Janice and DJ were scheduled to close the store at 8 o'clock that night, along with McDuffie. It was shortly after 11.30 that night that the two women were found dead inside the store. Both victims were mothers of two children. Janice had a 14-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. DJ had six-year-old twin daughters. The women were 39 and 27 years old, respectively. Janice and her sister Kelly were raised in Columbus, Ohio. Following the death of their mother, Kelly, who had already moved to Florida, convinced her sister to relocate and be closer to her. Janice agreed to do so after her common-law husband, Ted Teixeira, nailed down a job transfer. He and Teixeira, who was known by everyone as Tex, moved to Florida along with Janice's two teens. And not long after the move, Janice and Kelly, who were 17 months apart in age, became closer than ever. Kelly told me that Janice had no trouble establishing herself after she moved. Her personality was an advantage to her. She was she was very outgoing. She was not reserved at all. And... Uh, that's how she found it so easy to find jobs and to make friends as soon as she got here. Because she's very outgoing. She'll be anybody's friend. Janice was a week or so from switching jobs. She didn't like the hours she was getting at Dollar General and was a week away from starting a new job at the nearby Winn-Dixie. The store was located at Deltona Plaza, located at 1200 Deltona Boulevard, a short distance east of Interstate 4. Deltona is the largest populated city in Volusia County. It sits between Daytona Beach and Orlando. On the night of the murders, Janice and DJ had plans to go out for a drink after closing the store. They weren't going to be out for long because Janice had to pick up her teenage son from his homecoming dance. When Janice didn't show, her son called Tex, who picked him up in his work truck and then drove to the Dollar General store. The lights were on inside. Tex could also hear a radio blaring. But the doors were locked. He called the security alarm company via the number that was on the door. The security company called the manager, who then called DJ's family to see whether she had made it home. She had not. The manager immediately drove to the store. Kelly showed up there, too. 
We received a call from Tex, and he said he was at the store banging on the doors, and he could hear music in there, and that Janice's car was still at work, but she wasn't coming to the door. So my husband and I got in the car. It was after 9 o'clock. We got in the car and drove over there and uh, pounded some more and hollered through the door. We called the manager. We called the security company. And we called the police. And the manager showed up before the police did. So him and Tex went to the back of the store to look. And um, I made it halfway into the store. And they came back out and they said, go out. So we just went back out and they told us that the girls were dead. Their bodies were found in an office in the rear of the store. The manager saw them first and tried desperately to shield Tex from seeing Janice, but he couldn't. The manager did convince Tex to walk outside with him, and that's when the manager called 911. Tex, meanwhile, had to tell Janice's son that his mother was dead. Based on what crime scene specialists could surmise from the evidence, it appeared DJ was the first victim. Here is News Journal crime reporter Patricio Bologna describing how she was killed. We understand that Danielle Burgard, who is the youngest girl, 27, uh, they were both cashiers at the Dollar General. Uh, apparently, she was the first one who was attacked in the manager's office at the dollar store. She was bound, her with duct tape, her hands behind her. Uh, she was gagged. And apparently, she her throat was sliced several times before she was shot in her head. And there are some things that investigators discovered at the scene that showed that this was a very frightened young woman. She knew she was going to die. But there was no mercy shown. DJ was shot in the back of the head, execution style. Detectives said she was made to lie down on her stomach on the floor of the back office before she was cut and shot. Janice struggled with her attacker, in spite of knowing she was probably going to be killed. She suffered stab wounds to her head and body and was shot in the head and abdomen. News reports stated that Janice may have tried to free DJ before she was killed. When Tex and the store manager saw the bodies, they were draped one on top of the other. Janice lay on top of DJ, and blood splatter was everywhere. About $6,000 in cash and checks were stolen from the store. Here again is Kelly Lee describing what she did after the news hit her that her sister had been murdered. stood out in front of the doors and I was crying. I went and hid behind cars. I just didn't want people to look at me. And knowing that she was in there by herself. So I just kept just moving away from people. And I asked the cops when they showed up and went back there if she was... When the store manager called 911, he did so after he walked back outside. He walked away from Kelly, presumably because he didn't want her to overhear him describe the scene. At one point, he told the operator, quote, I don't want to go back in there. 
The building was secure when he and Tex showed up. All of the doors were locked, but the alarm had not been set. That led investigators to think it was an inside job. Patricio Bologna was not among the first people at the scene because he worked a night shift. It wasn't until the afternoon following the murder that he drove to the Dollar General. It was still a dramatic scene, and that's when he first met Kelly. Still, 12 hours later, it was it was just um, hard to believe that, uh, I guess, the, the idea of what happened out there, because there was a, still a huge crowd gathered in front of the Dollar General. I still remember that. And um, yellow tapes were being rolled up. I guess investigators were done with their preliminary phase of the investigation. And um, I had to find people to talk to to learn more about what happened there. And that's when we, that's when I ran into Kelly Lee, who was there in the, in the, in the parking lot of the Dollar General. And we found out later on that that was her sister that was one of the murder victims. So it's something memorable, um, crime-wise. I mean, it, it was, it was, the way the scene was described was pretty grisly. Journalists were getting the sense that an employee had committed the murders, but a full name was not given to Patricio or anyone else at the time. However, Kelly knew Janice was training someone who gave her the creeps, and Kelly immediately assumed the culprit had to be the guy Janice told her about. And it was actually that day from work, from her house, or she might have already been at work, because I talked to her several times a day. She said she didn't know why she was training him anymore, because he had already gotten a new job at one of the soda companies, either Coke or Pepsi. And she didn't understand why, he, why she was still training him if he wasn't taking the job in Pine Hill. But she continued to have to train him because that's what her boss told her to do. McDuffie was openly curious about the security in the building. A co-worker who was interviewed by detectives told them she remembered him commenting specifically that he saw no cameras anywhere. He would ask others specific questions about the security at the store. Here again is Patricio Bologna. Speculation was that he came there particularly to commit the crime because he was only there four days. He was asking questions like uh, regarding the security system in the store and stuff like that. So people, if you talk to people who are familiar with the case, outside investigators, that's the general feeling that he was there for that purpose. Four days after the killings, McDuffie voluntarily showed up at the Volusia County Sheriff's Office for an interview. He told a pair of detectives that Janice and DJ discovered a $50 deficit after they counted all the money in receipts. They counted a second time and came up with the same deficit. When it became clear he could offer them no help, he asked whether he could leave. He told the detectives that he left the store at 8.45 p.m. McDuffie also told him that he dropped off a payment to Aaron's Furniture around 9.30. He owed money for a television he had rented. Detectives caught him in a lie. Security cameras showed that McDuffie did not place the money for the TV in the deposit box at Aaron's until 10.30 p.m. Detectives realized that McDuffie had not accounted for at least an hour of his time that night. He had ample time, they thought, to commit those murders and get away long before Tex showed up at the store. 
That same night, McDuffie had a late dinner with his wife. The two ate at McDonald's. The casualness McDuffie showed after the slayings, going to an errands and then eating dinner at McDonald's, was something that prosecutors would point out to jurors at the trial. It was an example of McDuffie's cold-heartedness. Witnesses who were questioned said they saw a man lock the Dollar General store the night of the slayings, and that man matched McDuffie's description. A few Crime Stoppers tips also were called in. There was one other piece of evidence that was a critical component of the sheriff's office's case. A palm print had been found on a piece of the duct tape that was used on DJ. That print was matched to McDuffie. On December 17, 2002, nearly eight weeks after the murder, McDuffie was arrested in Orlando and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. His motive, according to investigators, was obvious. He was living beyond his means, and he needed money. As Patricio mentioned previously, it seemed he took the job at the Dollar General for the sole purpose of stealing money from the store. McDuffie had a lengthy criminal history prior to the murders, but most of the crimes he committed were not violent in nature. His stints behind bars were the results of arrests for grand theft, check fraud, passing worthless checks, and auto theft, just to name a few. That posed the question, why did Dollar General ever hire him in the first place, especially for a management position? All employees were required to pass background checks. No one from corporate answered questions related to that nagging question 16 years ago, and it remains a mystery how McDuffie fell through the cracks. That was part of the reason the families of the victims sued on behalf of the children. A settlement was reached, but the amount was never disclosed. McDuffie was tried twice for the killings. The first trial was held in DeLand in January 2005, more than two years after the defendant's arrest. The first trial had some zany moments. The attorney for McDuffie wanted to bar Tex from attending the trial based on rumors that he had brought a gun to a pretrial hearing for McDuffie and had vowed to kill him. The judge denied that motion. Jury selection was interrupted due to a bomb threat, and the entire process of selecting a jury took nearly two weeks. The evidence portion of the trial was very difficult for Kelly to sit through. The trials were terrible. We had to look at all the pictures. I guess we could have closed our eyes, but we uh, we looked at all the pictures and uh, just listening it was just really rough the the evidence that they had to show and talk about and you know talk about the slashes on them and the gunshot wounds one of the first witnesses called to the stand was tex he gave emotional testimony he had to describe to jurors what it was like telling janice's teenage son that his mother was dead while on the stand he said quote I told him I loved him. I told him his mom was dead. Then he pressed tissues against his face and sobbed. Some of the family members who were in the courtroom that day had to step out because they were so overcome with emotion. 
At least one juror wiped tears from her face while she listened to Texas testimony. A day or so later, jurors were shown videos of the crime scene, as well as photos. Again, family members had to excuse themselves because they couldn't handle seeing the bloody bodies of their loved ones lying on top of each other. After most of the trial was over, one of the last witnesses who took the stand, a fellow inmate of McDuffie's, blurted out that McDuffie committed extortion while in jail. The defense pounced on that and argued that it could prejudice the jury. The judge contemplated whether to call a mistrial, but the defense decided at the last minute to withdraw its motion. McDuffie wanted to take his chances with the jury. On February 15, 2005, jurors returned with a guilty verdict on all counts. Nine days later, after an emotional penalty phase, jurors voted unanimously to recommend death. The judge sentenced McDuffie to death row in March 2005. Then in November 2007, on the eve of Thanksgiving, McDuffie's conviction and sentence were overturned by the Florida Supreme Court. The defense team had argued that McDuffie was misidentified as a suspect by eyewitnesses. Also, the court said the trial judge was wrong by not allowing the defense to call McDuffie's friend to the stand, one who would have testified that he loaned McDuffie money to pay his debt. The news infuriated Kelly, who was forced to sit through a second trial in October 2008. This time, the trial was held outside Volusia County. It was held in St. Augustine, located two counties north. The second go-round was not any easier for Kelly. And then the second trial was like taking off a scab, starting all over again. You got all the same emotions, but it's the second time, so it's harder. It's still rough today because he's still trying to get another trial. After another long trial, McDuffie was found guilty again. Only this time, the jury recommended life in prison for McDuffie. That sentence disappointed the families of the two victims, and at the time it angered Kelly. But she still takes comfort in knowing that McDuffie will not be a free man ever again. I'm satisfied that he's going to come out in a pine box so he can't hurt anybody else. I had wished that he got the death penalty, but only for one reason, and that was so he would have to be in that tiny little cell for the rest of his life. Um, he was caught, and he's in prison for the rest of his life and no chance of parole. You can't ask for much more than that. Kelly and Patricio got to know each other well during the time between the murders and the end of the second trial. The two of them struck up a friendship, which remains to this day. Patricio described to me how Janice's murder affected Kelly. Uh, Tony, it's been very hard on her because, when, I, like I told you, when I met her in the parking lot, I still can't believe that she was still gracious enough to be able to share some of the things about her sister and what she knew at the crime scene, um, intimate details that investigators are not let out, which got me into problems with the sheriff's office because we were reporting stuff that uh, they had not given out. 
I remember when I interviewed her the last time, she was fumbling with her pills. Um, pills that uh, can help her sleep, pills that can help her keep calm. And uh, due, along with those pills, she, I think, started seeing her therapist twice a month, three times a month. That's how hard she was hit by this murder. Kelly served as a spokeswoman for not only her family, but for DJs, too. They were much more protective of their privacy. DJ's two daughters are in their mid-twenties today. Kelly told me that tragedy continued to follow them following their mother's death. A few years back, they lost their father to a drug overdose. And uh, they went to live with one of their aunts. And then she died of a drug overdose. So a lot of loss for the children. And uh, the family's strong. They're holding together. And uh, we're all moving forward. Tex still stays in contact with Kelly, although his health has deteriorated. Kelly's niece lives in the Panhandle, and her nephew remained in Deltona. He's now a member of the U.S. Army National Guard, and his unit was sent to the Panhandle to help with recovery efforts following Hurricane Michael. Kelly told me that her memories of Janice are as vivid today as they've ever been. I think of her every day, and I talk to anybody who'll talk about her. My kids, my husband, she's always in the conversation. You know, my daughter's getting ready to have a birth, uh, a baby, and uh, she would have been so thrilled. Her son is having his third child. She just... She just would have been so happy to be a grandma. The most emotionally wrenching moment in our conversation was when Kelly described to me her connection with the scene of the crime. She lingered there for a while the night her sister was killed and returned the following day. Even more surprisingly, she still goes there. I was waiting for them to bring out her body. And um, I, I just... We left. I couldn't take it, but then we came back. I still spend a lot of time there. You still go. You still go to the scene. Yeah. Can Can you explain why Why you do that? No, I can't explain it. The first time was a year afterwards, and uh, I just I just felt like I needed to go in. And then I didn't go in for, I didn't go back for a long time. And uh, then it turned into a furniture store. And I've been in there. I was just in there about three weeks ago. I just feel drawn to it. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the 2013 triple murder of a West Volusia mother and her two children. Their bodies were never found. The adult victim's estranged boyfriend, Luis Toledo, was arrested, tried, and convicted for all three killings. Among my guests next week will be News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.